Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this episode, it's back into the Julio-Claudian saga as we more or less conclude the story of Emperor Tiberius. Things in Rome have been topsy-turvy since... Okay, since basically the Republic began to decline. But specifically for this story, things have been in a state of flux ever since both of Tiberius' sons, Germanicus and Drusus, died, leaving the emperor without an heir. Instead of making any sort of obvious decision over an heir, he did in fact have several male relatives living at this time, Tiberius will kinda just... step back. He's still very much emperor, and there's a lot to discuss in his story, but it's a weird time for the newly flourishing empire. However, we'll also be discussing another major historical figure of this time period, Lucius Aelius Sejanus, usually just known by his cognomen Sejanus. He was an incredibly important political figure within the latter half of Tiberius's reign, almost serving in a similar capacity to the current emperor as Marcus Agrippa had served to Augustus, almost being a very important modifier in that sentence. He served as the leader of the Praetorian Guard, a group I've briefly mentioned in the past but who we'll learn much more about in the background lesson for this episode. When Tiberius stepped away from Rome, someone will have to lead things in the meantime. Who will take that role? And how good of a job will he do during that time? Also, how did Tiberius' reign as Emperor of Rome end? That's a lot of questions that need to be answered throughout this episode. So without further ado, let's continue the story. We're going back in time to Rome in the early 1st century CE in A Capricious Reign. Like I said in the intro, we're covering the Praetorian Guard in the background history lesson for this episode. So who were they? The Guard were once a personal bodyguard service during the Roman Republic. They served the Praetors. That sounds pretty self-explanatory. A Praetor could be one of two things, a magistrate who held a political position below the rank of a consul or a commander of an army. This old-school version of the Praetorian Guard was usually reserved for the military commanders. However, like many things in the early BCE period of Rome as it transformed from a republic into an empire, the Praetorian Guard would get a makeover under Emperor Augustus. Instead of serving any commander within the Roman military, the Praetorian Guard now just served one person, the Emperor. Originally, Augustus arranged nine cohorts of the Praetorian Guard. A cohort was 500 soldiers, so this was 4,500 members of the Guard who acted as his personal bodyguards. Sounds a bit like overkill, but this was Augustus we're talking about. Overall favorite uncle, father, god of the Empire. But they weren't the only people to guard the Emperor, as Augustus also had a small side contingency of Germanic mercenaries who were his personal protectors. In 2 BCE, Augustus further evolved the guard by creating a two-man leadership role referred to as the Prefectus Praetorio, aka the Prefects. The Prefects would respond directly to the Emperor and control the rest of their comrades. These two prefects were also the only men who were allowed to carry swords in the Emperor's presence. Sounds kinda weird considering you'd think bodyguards should be able to carry weapons when protecting the guy who is their sole jurisdiction. Then again, 
things weren't always so hot with the Praetorian Guard and the Emperors they served. The Guard lasted as a group far past the Julio-Claudians, serving every Emperor up until the reign of Constantine I in the early 300s CE. So let's learn a bit more about these guys as they developed over the centuries after their inception. Well, the most major evolution of the Guard is also a bit of a spoiler alert for a future Julio-Claudian Saga episode. Well, considering that episode is a bit of a ways off, I'll try to skirt around the true spoilers. You know, despite it being history, so that doesn't really have a spoiler alert system. After a while, the Praetorian Guard became the most prestigious soldiers of the Roman army. That meant if you were Emperor, you didn't want them on your bad side. Well, a certain Julio-Claudian Emperor did get on the bad side of the Guard. So they killed him and then they chose his successor. This did not end up being an uncommon occurrence throughout the rest of the Praetorian Guard's existence. In fact, in the early 3rd century CE, the Guard killed Emperor Caracalla and installed one of the prefects, Marcus Opelius Macrinus, as the new emperor. This was the only time that ever happened. The Guard would become so corrupt that they needed to oftentimes be bribed when a new Emperor was chosen so that they would remain loyal and not get any assassination ideas brewing among their ranks. One Emperor, Didius Julianus, even upfront gave each Guard five years worth of their salary in order to remain loyal to him when he was chosen as the new Emperor. But the Praetorian Guard did not just exist as personal bodyguards and possible electors of a new Emperor. They were first and foremost soldiers. About a third of their rank lived within the city of Rome, and most of the Praetorian Guard were Italian by birth. Due to laws about armies not actually occupying the city, the soldiers were allowed to be armed but did not wear armor when going about their day-to-day -day business. Outside the city, things were different. Starting in the 2nd century CE, the Praetorians began functioning as a reserve army for the actual Roman military. Whenever an emperor would go into battle, the Praetorian guards were by his side. A prefect would act as the emperor's second-in-command, but in the event that the Praetorian guard was on the battlefield but the emperor was not, one of the prefects became the commander of the Roman army. But back in the middle of Tiberius's reign, the Praetorians were still mostly just reserved to the function of his bodyguard and police officers throughout the city of Rome. It wasn't until he started turning away from his royal duties that someone would step in to see the guard expand in power. There was no chosen successor to the Roman Empire. Germanicus, the golden child and hope of the Roman people, had been poisoned out east in Roman Syria in 19 CE. Four years later, Tiberius' son Drusus was also poisoned. It's during this period of history where Tiberius really begins to evolve into the figure that has since become his stereotype in history, which I'll get more into by the end of the episode. The Emperor was starting to fear for his own life following the deaths of his son, meaning that he became paranoid and prone to cruel outbursts towards anyone he feared might be thinking about taking him out of the picture. He even went so far as to have the slaves of his allies tortured to see if they would confess to murder plots formed by their masters. All in all, it wasn't really a good time to be anyone in the Roman Empire, especially those close to Tiberius himself. On top of all this, Tiberius had to deal with his mother, Livia. 
Now, around this time, Tiberius was about 60 years old. He was emperor of the largest nation in Europe. However, Livia had been the wife of a man who had been deified upon his death. If things had actually gone the way Augustus had planned, Livia would basically be a living goddess. You may remember that she had been given the new name Julia Augustus upon her husband's death, essentially making it a clear message to the people that she was very much the most important woman in the empire. Now, with all that in mind, having her around was basically a massive thorn in the side of the supposedly most powerful person in all of Rome. It constantly seemed like the two were vying for who held more power. At one point, Livia commissioned a statue of Augustus to be built in the city. On the plaque commemorating the project, she had her name put before Tiberius's. So, despite the Emperor's desires to essentially veto Livia's titles and powers into the dust, it became very apparent that there was nothing he could do to stop Livia from breathing down his neck. So, Tiberius did the one thing he felt he could do to get some peace of mind. Among the many things he inherited from Augustus upon the death of his adopted father, Tiberius received a vacation home on the island of Capri, just off the western coast of Italy. The island was essentially a tourist spot for Rome's upper class. It had sunshine, it was vaguely remote, but most importantly, it didn't have Livia. Nor did it have the stifling political life of the city of Rome. In 26 CE, Tiberius finally decided enough was enough and peaced out of Rome to live in that summer getaway. He was still very much emperor, but the city could be left in someone else's hands while Tiberius shut himself away. But who would be the person to act as the new guardian of Rome? Well, let's go back in time a bit to learn about Prefect Sejanus. I do want to say right here that when I first heard of Sejanus, which can also be pronounced Sejanus, which is actually the true Latin pronunciation, but you'll probably hear it as Sejanus unless you want to be nitpicky, it was in an audiobook, so I thought his name was actually Sir Janus. No, but that's just his cognomen, S-E-J-A-N-U-S. Anyways, let's get back to proper history learning. Lucius Aelius Sejanus was born in 20 BCE. His family belonged to the Equite class, which was the second highest social class in Rome, just under the senatorial class. It's often anglicized into the knight class. From birth, Sejanus' family was tied to that of Augustus and the new imperial family. In his youth, he was raised on a similar path, if not even side by side, alongside Augustus' grandson, Gaius Caesar. Young Sejanus even served alongside Gaius during his campaigns in the eastern provinces of Rome. But the biggest change for the family of Sejanus was in 2 BCE when his father, Lucius Caius Strabo, was chosen by the emperor to become one of the first Praetorian prefects. Now you'll notice that Sejanus and his fathers have different nomen, aka the Roman equivalent of a surname. At birth, he, like his father, would have also been Lucius Seius, but he was adopted into the Aelii family where his original nomen was turned into the cognomen Sejanus, aka Seianus. Seius Seianus, get it? Little was known about Sejanus's life between his father's appointment as Praetorian Prefect and Sejanus's own rise to power. 
At some point in this intermediary period, he married his first wife, Apicata. When Augustus kicked it in 14 CE, Seius Strabo helped his son out by promoting him as his co-prefect. Very soon after Sejanus became prefect of the Praetorian Guard, he was ordered by Tiberius, now the new emperor, to aid his son Drusus by putting down mutinies among the Roman army in Pannonia, a Roman province that occupied land in the North Balkans and southern Austria and Hungary. I talked about these mutinies in the previous Julio-Claudian episode over Germanicus, so listen to that one again if you need a refresher. Basically, the army didn't like Tiberius even though the new emperor had made a name for himself as a military leader. They revolted, Germanicus put down the revolts in Germania, and Drusus, now with Sejanus' assistance, put down the revolts out east. Shortly after the mutinies were handled, Sejanus' father was promoted from prefect to governor of Egypt. This was a pretty big deal. Egypt, since Augustus conquered it at the end of his war with Mark Antony, had always been the emperor's special province. The only people who could be elected as governor were high-ranking soldiers. It was basically the best-case scenario position for anyone born into the equite class. However, this also meant that Sejanus was now the sole prefect of the Praetorian Guard. Now as the most powerful soldier in Rome, Sejanus began strategizing a way to gain further power. The best way to do this was to further implant himself within the imperial royal family. His original plan was to have his daughter, Yanella, engaged to the son of Claudius, Tiberius' nephew and future emperor of Rome. Both of their children were still young, so it would be a while before this plan would come to fruition. At least it would have been until Claudius's son died. So, without a clear path into the royal family, Sejanus decided maybe he should focus on prestige within the Praetorian Guard. It was here where we see the first new evolution of the Praetorian Guard since Augustus created the prefect system. For the most part, the Guard were scattered across Italy. Yeah, quite a few lived within the city of Rome, but there were even some beyond the borders of the province. Sejanus realized that this could cause problems if the city of Rome itself was actually attacked. He proposed that all the Praetorian Guard was to be stationed at a single camp just outside the city of Rome in order to consolidate the Guard's power. Tiberius agreed to this measure and Sejanus created the new barracks called the Castra Praetoria. The Castra was seen as a rousing success for the Praetorians, especially for the sole prefect Sejanus. His influence among the aristocracy began to grow at a rapid pace. However, not everyone was convinced that Sejanus's status update was valid. In fact, it was a man who Sejanus had once worked alongside who would prove to be the prefect's first great hurdle, Drusus. Despite coming up multiple times throughout the past few Julio-Claudian episodes, we haven't really taken a deep dive into the life of Drusus Julius Caesar, aka Drusus the Younger. And we still won't be doing that in this one. Despite being a fairly competent politician and soldier in his own right, his life was just constantly eclipsed by the fact that his adopted brother Germanicus existed. And when he finally got his few years in the sun after the death of Germanicus, it proved to only be his downfall. Now as the new heir of the empire, he had to deal with rumors surrounding his brother's death. Germanicus's wife Agrippina was very much convinced that Drusus planned her husband's death. 
It's highly unlikely that he wanted Germanicus dead. The two got along pretty well. But moving aside from that, let's bring Sejanus back into the story. In the early 20s CE, the Theater of Pompey was set on fire. The Theater of Pompey was completed in 55 BCE under the supervision of Pompey the Great, one-time ally and soon-turned fiercest rival of Julius Caesar. It was famously the first permanent theater in Rome and infamously the site of Caesar's assassination as it was acting as a temporary senate meeting location. So this location was very important for the people of Rome. Sejanus led the efforts to help put out the fire, which gained him great acclaim with the people of Rome and their emperor. A statue in the prefect's likeness was built outside the theater to commemorate its savior. But Drusus was not willing to believe that all of Sejanus's heroics were done out of goodness for the empire. In a truly unfair set of beliefs, Drusus thought it was impossible for someone who was not of senatorial birth to possibly get as close to his father as Sejanus had come to be. Of course, Sejanus was trying to make a power grab, but no one else really knew this. Their rivalry was so intense that once, in a public argument, Drusus hit the prefect, either slapping or outright punching him in the face. But perhaps the one aspect of Sejanus' plans Drusus overlooked was with something much closer to home, his wife Lavilla. Claudia Livia was the niece of Tiberius and sister of Germanicus, meaning that things were kind of complicated there given she was married to Drusus. She was named after her grandmother, Livia, and was called by the nickname Lavilla, meaning Little Livia. And just like Drusus, Lavilla's life was never really able to reach its full potential because her brother Germanicus was so great. And by this I mean that Germanicus's wife Agrippina was seen as such a powerful role model for the women of Rome. Seeing her as a possible stepping stone in his quest for power, Sejanus attempted to seduce Lavilla. For whatever reason, she went along with the affair. No one is entirely sure why she agreed to be with Sejanus. Some people think Drusus was actually abusive. Others suggest that she thought Sejanus had a better chance of reaching the throne than her husband, meaning her sons would have a better chance at the throne. Some historians even believe Lavilla's sons may have actually been Sejanus's children. Or, hey, maybe she actually just likes Sejanus better than Drusus. Well, when Sejanus then divorced his wife, things began to get serious. With the relationship now in full swing, there was only one thing to do. In 23 CE, Drusus died. At the time, everyone believed he had simply fallen ill and succumbed to whatever disease had taken hold of him. However, later Roman historians wrote that Drusus's death was actually due to being poisoned by his wife and the Praetorian Prefect. Roman historian Cassius Dio insists that Sejanus wrote about his deeds to his ex-wife, who then revealed the plot after Sejanus died. With Drusus now out of the picture, Sejanus asks Tiberius if he could have Lavilla's hand in marriage. Well, that hit the major snag of, read the room, buddy. Tiberius was now in full-blown depression mode and retreating from public life and refused to let the pair marry. As for Lavilla's ambitions for her son, that also backfired. Even though Drusus had been the heir apparent to the Empire, Germanicus would have one last post-mortem hurrah as his children were now promoted to the presumed heirs of Tiberius, even though the Emperor never made that decree. 
it seemed like it would take a miracle for Sejanus to get any scrap of Imperial power. But fate had not truly left the prefix side just yet. Because, as we all well know, Tiberius had turned his eyes towards Capri. Now that he was outside of Rome and had some space to clear his head, Tiberius was finally able to start enacting policies that he felt were necessary for the Empire. This included ousting many members of the Senate and citizens of the Equite class who had lived within the city. They were charged for treason and either forced out of the city or just outright killed. Despite being safe in Capri, it was clear that Tiberius still had fits of paranoia. These trials were convened by Sejanus, who was now acting as the de facto leader of the Roman capital. It wasn't too soon after Tiberius left that the citizens of Rome, and perhaps Sejanus himself, began thinking that the prefect thought of himself as basically emperor. That'll have consequences later. With his new power, Sejanus upped the number of soldiers within the Praetorian Guards so he now commanded 12,000 men within the city of Rome. But Sejanus was not safe in his position, especially if he sought to make it a permanent one. After all, even though Drusus was dead and Tiberius was semi-retired, there was still the rest of the imperial family to deal with. If something were to happen to the emperor and Rome wanted another Julio-Claudian on the throne instead of Sejanus, who would they choose? There was always the possibility of Germanicus's younger brother, Claudius, the same man who Sejanus had sought to align himself with earlier. We'll definitely talk more about Claudius down the line, but for now I'll say here that no one really wanted him on the throne. He was classically portrayed as one of the several black sheep of the Julio-Claudians, usually as a bumbling fool with no mind for politics. His children were also too young to be seen as a real threat. However, the family of Germanicus was still very much alive and kicking. Agrippina and her friends were essentially the leaders of the political world that stood against the ruling of Sejanus. The prefect knew that if he was to get anything he wanted, Agrippina, her allies, and even her children would have to go. Sejanus began his attacks against the party of Agrippina by having her allies in the senate tried for reason. With them out of the way, he began looking to any potentially legitimate successors to the imperial throne. The two most likely successors were Agrippina's oldest sons, Nero and Drusus. Yes, there is yet another Drusus in this story. In order to make it easier, they will both be Nero and Drusus Julius Caesar. Though this had probably been happening beforehand as well, in 29 CE, Sejanus had been sending letters to the Emperor in an attempt to convince Tiberius that Agrippina and Nero Julius Caesar were looking to see him killed and needed to be dealt with ASAP. Tiberius sent a letter to the Senate condemning Agrippina and her oldest son. Agrippina was to be put on trial for treason, but Nero was supposedly being punished for crimes of sexual misconduct, so whatever that means is anyone's guess. Considering that the family of Germanicus was incredibly popular, the Senate was hesitant to comply. It took another angry letter for the Emperor for them to hold the trials and have Agrippina and her son exiled. Neither would ever see the city of Rome again as they both died in exile within the next couple years. Drusus Julius Caesar began speaking out against Sejanus and his witch hunt on the imperial family. The next year, in 30 CE, Sejanus had him locked away in a Roman prison for speaking out against the wishes of the emperor. 
A little over a month after he was imprisoned, Drusus starved to death. It's said that he had been so hungry that he had been reduced to attempting to eat the mattress in his cell. This still left four children of Germanicus and Agrippina, her three daughters and youngest son, Caligula. Since Gaius Caligula was not yet an adult, I guess he was given a reprieve from exile and murder. There should have been one person to stop Sejanus during all of this, Livia, Tiberius' mother. Even during the worst of Sejanus' tyrannical rulings, she had been there to keep him in check. However, she was old and grew ill. In 29 CE, the wife of Augustus died at the age of 87. It was probably due to her death that Sejanus was able to take action against Agrippina and her family. Tiberius did not even return to Rome for his mother's funeral. The most he did during all this time was allow young Caligula to move in with him at his vacation villa in Capri. But now, Sejanus had no true political rivals. He had been named Tiberius's Socius Laborum, my friend in toils. Statues had been erected to him. He was the most powerful man in Rome. Who could possibly exist to cut him down to size? Tiberius continued heaping praise and power onto Sejanus. After all, hadn't the prefects saved him from the conniving conspiracies of the imperial family? This all came to a tremendous peak in 31 CE. Several years after having previously refused their union, Tiberius allowed Sejanus and Lavilla to get married. Sejanus was also elected as consul for the year 31 CE alongside Tiberius. This was one of the classic moves a Roman emperor had to suggest he had chosen a new heir. It was also a strange turn of events considering that only members of the senatorial social class could be elected as consul. Truly, all signs pointed to Tiberius transitioning power to the Praetorian Prefect. But things changed when Tiberius received a letter from an unlikely source, his sister-in-law, Antonia Minor. We've only briefly mentioned Antonia in past episodes. She was the daughter of Mark Antony and Octavia, Augustus's older sister. This meant she was also the mother of Germanicus, Claudius, and Lovilla. She wrote a letter to the Emperor that Sejanus was obviously plotting to gather enough power in order to overthrow Tiberius and see himself seated as the leader of Rome. Okay, so let me just outline something here, something maybe you've thought about since the beginning of this episode. If you remember some info from past episodes, Tiberius allegedly never wanted to be the Emperor. He even kinda refused after Augustus died and left him as the heir to the throne. However, everything we've seen this episode has been Tiberius growing paranoid about seeing people overthrow him. Yes, this all started through the murders of his sons and the belief that he was going to be murdered. However, as I don't have Antonia's letter, nor do I read Latin, I don't know what Sejanus' plans were here. I don't think he actually wanted Tiberius dead. Either way, it seems weird that a man who never wanted power was now growing increasingly upset and crazed at the thought of losing it. Okay, so where do we go from here? Well, in May of 31 CE, Tiberius stepped down as consul of Rome. He instructed Sejanus to do the same. The prefect was confused but otherwise complied. 
Tiberius slowly began to leave out Sejanus in his letters addressed to the Senate. In a surprisingly fast turn, the prefect's power within the government began to fade. This all came to a head when, later in May, Tiberius secretly appointed a new prefect for the Praetorian Guard, a man named Sutorius Macro. He had Macro deliver a letter addressed to Sejanus that the latter was to read in front of the Senate, allegedly one that would give Sejanus the powers of a tribune. Obviously excited at this prospect, Sejanus stood before the Senate and read the letter. It began by praising Sejanus, good start, but just before it seemed to give the prefect what he wanted, the letter drastically changed course. It began to call out Sejanus on his failures and ended with calling for Sejanus and several senators linked to him to be thrown in prison. Yes, Sejanus read all of this before the Senate. He was forced to read his own arrest warrant. Well, obviously what the Emperor says goes. Sejanus was arrested and thrown in jail alongside several of his companions. Every statue that had been made in his honor was torn down. His family was humiliated, with many being killed or committing suicide. It was during this time where Sejanus' first wife sent Tiberius the letter that divulged Sejanus and Lavilla's complicit nature in the assassination of his son, Drusus. In October of that year, the Senate convened to determine Sejanus' fate. He was sentenced to death, being strangled at the top of the Gemonian Stairs in Rome, also called the Stairs of Mourning. His corpse was then tossed down the stairs where it was abused by a mob for three straight days before it was tossed into the Tiber River. The man who had once nearly held the empire in the palm of his hand had found himself victim to the capricious nature of Tiberius. Tiberius would never actually return to Rome. After the death of Sejanus, he only attempted to make the journey twice. The first time he was sailing to Rome down the Tiber River but for some reason had the ship turned around as soon as he saw Rome on the horizon. The second time, he was on his way when he was forced to stop after his pet snake died. As a fellow pet snake owner, I get it, I too would be unable to perform my political duties if she passed away. But living in self-imposed exile proved to only make Tiberius worse. Yeah, he had Caligula, but, well, we'll go into that in the next Julio-Claudian episode. Rumors began to fly across the Empire that, behind the closed doors of his villa, Tiberius had been transformed into a sadistic and perverted monster. He tortured anyone he desired and had a whole cavalcade of underage boys and girls he used to satisfy his sexual depravities. After torture, or that, he would have anyone involved thrown off a nearby cliff into the Tyranian Sea. Were these rumors true? It's impossible to say, but they were detailed heavily in biographies written about Tiberius after his death. This helped form the picture that Tiberius was always a hardened, cruel man who should never have been made Augustus's heir. But as I said, Tiberius never returned to Rome. He died in March of 37 CE in bed while at the port city of Mycenaeum. According to rumors, his death was carried out at the hands of the Praetorian Guard who were watching him. In the last few years of his life, it became apparent that after Tiberius' death, the imperial throne would go to his adopted grandson, Caligula. Well, if we follow the rumors of his death even further, 
It's said that Tiberius's murder was ordered by Caligula himself. We'll go over that next time we come back to the Julio-Claudian saga. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and follow the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. The show's going on a break for the next month, so be sure to keep up the good word in the meantime. Leave a review if that interests you. When we come back, we're beginning a series of episodes over one of medieval Europe's most famous kings, Charlemagne. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. Whoa, whoa, whoa.